Welcome back to the Saving Delaware History Podcast, where today we're speaking with Gloria Henry and Annie Fenimore, the site supervisor and lead interpreter of the John Dickinson Plantation. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Hello. Hi, thank you. It's good to have you. Can we just start with what is the John Dickinson Plantation and who's John Dickinson? The John Dickinson Plantation is an historic site administered by the Delaware Division of Historical and Cultural Affairs. Um, the plantation is the boyhood home of John Dickinson, who was known as the penman of the revolution. He was one of America's founding fathers um, who wrote of freedom and liberty for all while holding human beings in bondage. He abstained from the vote on independence, allowing it to move forward um, unanimously. And he actually fought during the revolution at the Battle of Brandywine. He served as governor of both Delaware and Pennsylvania and after the revolution, he served as a Delaware delegate to the Constitutional Convention, and his name is signed to the U.S. Constitution. The plantation is his boyhood home, and it was located and is located south of Dover on the banks of the St. Jones River. And during John Dickinson's lifetime, it grew to almost 5,000 acres, which included six landings, marshland, wooded areas, rich farmland, and the main crops included corn, wheat, and flax. The plantation was home to a variety of people and not just the wealthy, wealthy privileged. The site documents and tells the stories of the tenant farmers, the indentured servants, the free and enslaved black men, women, and children who lived, worked, and died here on the plantation. Could you give us kind of a brief history of the plantation? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So. Samuel Dickinson was a tobacco farmer, merchant, and slaveholder in Talbot County, Maryland. Beginning in the 1730s, he purchased several tracts of land that stretched from the Dover area to the St. Jones River right here in Delaware. By 1740, Samuel Dickinson, his wife Mary, and their two young sons, John and Philemon, had moved into their newly built Georgian brick mansion, which faced the St. Jones River. The plantation was named Poplar Hall, and enslaved men, women, and children labored to grow tobacco, then eventually wheat and corn. Now, when Samuel Dickinson died in 1760, the Delaware lands and the enslaved men, women, and children were divided between his sons, John and Philemon. John Dickinson became the owner of the mansion, the surrounding land, and many of the enslaved individuals. By 1767, the mansion had become a tenant house. John Dickinson leased the mansion, the grounds, and his other nearby properties, as well as the enslaved men, women, and children to tenant farmers in exchange for money, crops, products, and animals. Some of the enslaved individuals were farmers themselves. Some were tailors, shoemakers, tanners, and carpenters. John Dickinson leased them to others that needed the labor and that made them, the enslaved individuals, available to his tenants to help them fulfill their lease agreements. Now, John Dickinson eventually owned more than 5,000 acres and he engaged in tenancy practices with both white and black men and women. Some of the farmlands were leased to tenant farmers who owned enslaved individuals after 1786, the John Dickinson Plantation was certainly home to tenant farmers, tradesmen, 
free black people, indentured servants, and enslaved individuals. Now, John Dickinson himself, he died in 1808. The plantation passed to his daughter, Sally Norris Dickinson, and remained in the Dickinson family until the 20th century when it passed through a series of owners. Now, just a point of clarification, after Sally Norris Dickinson died and it passed to other Dickinsons, their last name wasn't Dickinson. Um, it passed through a different family because her sister had married into the Logans and so on and so forth. So what would you say the status of Delaware African-Americans was in the 18th century? You were an African-American person in the 18th century here in Delaware. You could be considered free, indentured, or enslaved. However, being free only meant a limited freedom. There were, there were laws that restricted where you could go or where you couldn't go. You may or may not, may not own a weapon. Um, you could, cannot gather in large groups. So there were a lot of restrictions, even if you were considered free. If you were indentured, you signed a contract binding yourself to another person for a certain term of service. And the contract you could have negotiated and agreed to um, learn a skill, or you could ask for a yearly clothing allowance, room and board. All of these were included in the contract. It could have also included restrictions such as no, got, no getting married and no visiting certain places. In either of these cases, you were considered a person with legal rights, though they were limited rights. If you were enslaved, you were viewed as property. You were listed in wills and inventories with the cattle and the household goods. Your name and age may be listed. Um, you could have been seized and sold to alleviate debts. If you were a woman, your children were considered enslaved individuals also. So when did John Dickinson free the enslaved individuals he owned? Well, to tell you that, let me give you a little context. Um, when John Dickinson's father, Samuel, died in 1760, John and his brother, Philemon, inherited the property that included enslaved individuals and families. So by that point, John Dickinson enslaved Black men, women, and children. Um, he continued to do so for 26 years of his life. In 1777, John Dickinson issued a conditional manumission. Now, a manumission itself means a legal document issuing um, freedom to certain people. Now, conditional, that means that there were certain conditions attached to this freedom. So this conditional manumission document from 1777 stated that the enslaved individuals had to faithfully serve and obey for an additional 21 years. So that's, that's 21 years from 1777. According to that document, they had to serve Dickinson faithfully and obey him until 1798. Now, John Dickinson was also including other parts to that conditional manumission that every child under the age of 10 had to be taught to read and write. The list of the people named in the 1777 document are recorded in family groupings. The original document can be found online and um, the physical copy is located at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Now, in 1781, John Dickinson unconditionally manumitted, that is freeing, six people. We do not know 
the motivations to that or why he chose those six people specifically. Then in 1786, John Dickinson manumitted everyone he held in bondage unconditionally. So he did include the phrase in that document that um, anyone he had not named earlier, anyone that he may have forgotten, um, he freed them as well. So while we know that the list of names that he included of those men, women, and children um, numbered almost 60, there might have been more individuals that he did not name in that document. And that phrase um, shows that. Now, the original document from for the 1786 manumission is in the Kent County D's book, which is located at the Delaware Public Archives. So one motivation for John Dickinson's actions regarding these manumissions was provided by Sally Norris Dickinson, his daughter. She wrote in a document that she was not sure when her father told her, but he was aware that the recording angel stood ready to make record against him in heaven had he neglected it, it being the manumission of the people he enslaved. So some of the formerly enslaved people agreed to continue working for John Dickinson as indentured servants, signing contracts like the ones Gloria mentioned earlier. Some children became indentured servants working for John Dickinson for a number of years and then continued to work for him as fully free individuals after their indenture contract was completed. What type of work did African-Americans engage in during the 18th century and on this plantation specifically? African-Americans in the 18th century were a skilled labor. Their occupations were varied and some required expertise and skill. This included shoemakers, tailors, carpenters, blacksmiths, spinners, tanners, laborers, farmers, coachmen, and possibly beekeepers. So there were a variety of people doing a variety of jobs. Whatever was needed to be done, many people learned the skill or had at least rudimentary um, skills in that particular occupation. Who were Peter Patton and John Furby? Um, so, Peter Patton and John Furby were two brothers who were free black men. They lived and worked in the St. Jones Neck area as tenants of Nathaniel Luff. Now, after John Dickinson purchased the Luff property, John Furby and Peter Patton continued as John Dickinson's tenants. So by 1787, if you were a free black individual in Delaware, you could own or rent land. Um, now, in 1801, John Furby and Peter Patton leased land together from John Dickinson. The next year, that would be 1802, they each leased land separately, different properties from John Dickinson. John Furby's tenure with the Dickinson family lasted 11 years. During that time, he rented 368 acres with a dwelling house and outbuildings. He grew corn, wheat, and rye. John Furby was married to Tamir Furby, and they had six children named Daphne Smith, Rachel Bryan, Sarah Rodney, Sally Ann Lober, and Clement and Edward Furby. John Furby died in 1815. The inventory taken after his death was valued at $1,029.82. Included in the inventory were livestock valued at $315, 
crocs valued at 354 dollars and furniture valued at 113 dollars peter patton's tenure with the dickinson family lasted through 1810 during that time he rented 642 acres with a dwelling house kitchen corn crib smokehouse and milk house by 1792 he had married dinah a formerly enslaved woman owned by john dickinson Peter Patton died in 1833. His inventory was valued at $185.87. Almost all of the inventory's value was in livestock with two pair of oxen valued at $50. John Kirby and Peter Patton were prosperous farmers during their tenancy with John Dickinson. They lived, worked, and raised their families on the Jones Neck. Is the John Dickinson Plantation a member of any organization associated with African-American history? The John Dickinson Plantation is a member of the National Park Service's Network to Freedom. The organization's mission is to honor, preserve, and promote the history of resistance to enslavement through escape and flight, which continues to inspire people worldwide. Currently, there are over 650 locations that are a part of the network and 40 states plus Washington, D.C. and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Here on the plantation, we have documented escapes. One example of a freedom seeker was named Clem. Clem was an enslaved African-American man who was owned by one of John Dickinson's tenants, William White. In 1790, William White placed a $6 reward notice in the Delaware Gazette for the capture of Clem. In the notice, Clem was described as 35 or 40 years old about five feet, four or five inches, and somewhat hard of hearing. We have no documentation that he was ever captured or that the reward money was ever paid. The reward notice indicates that Clem may have been aware that John Dickinson had manumitted the people he owned and used that knowledge in helping his escape. In addition to the Network to Freedom, the John Dickinson Plantation was accepted as a member of the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. A site of conscience is a place or memory, a museum, historic site, memorial or memory initiative that confronts both the history of what happened there and the contemporary legacy of that history. In joining the coalition, the plantation reaffirmed its commitment to engaging with visitors about the uncomfortable truths and painful narratives associated with the institution of slavery, both at this site and in the early history of the United States. On that note, could you tell us about the recent discovery of the burial grounds on the property? Yes, on March 9, 2021, archeological field work led to the identification of a burial ground on the site of the John Dickinson Plantation. This sacred ground likely holds enslaved individuals and other African Americans who lived, worked, and died on land owned by the Dickinson family. The burial ground is 170 feet by 160 feet. That's 27,200 square feet. Now the division plans to engage with the Senate communities, academic professionals, and public historians in making important decisions regarding the burial ground. There is no access to this burial ground location at the present time. The John Dickinson Plantation was home 
both voluntarily and involuntarily to a variety of people. We share the stories of the plantation's residents, the Dickinsons, the tenant farmers, the indentured servants, the free and enslaved black men, women, and children who lived, worked, and died on this plantation. Wonderful. Thank you both. And I'm sure people can come check out your museum if they ever have any more questions. Yes, Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having us.